teaching of God's word does three things to a man or to the believer. The teaching of God's word is fundamentally for three things. Now, the first thing that the teaching of God's word is for is for information, of course. I mean, um, as God's word is taught, most a lot of times, or a good number of times, you hear something you've not heard before, or you have a better perspective into what you've known before, or you are corrected about what you've heard up to know. All right, so that's a key part of the teaching of God's word. The number two thing that the teaching of God's word does to you as a believer is that it makes you see your capability or your capacity to do what God would have you do. All right, so um, as I've said before, and as you would see in James chapter 1, James 1 says that um, he who is a hearer of the word, right, he says he will look at into the perfect law of liberty, right, and continues daring, right? He says the same will be blessed in all that he does. Now, he spoke about the, the um, one that hears the word, but is not a door of the word. He says this man looks, he says he's like one that looks into a mirror, and he says he goes away and henceforth forgets what manner of man he was. So, hence, the man who receives the word is likened to one, right, who is um, looking into a mirror. Hallelujah. He's looking into a mirror. Now, the difference between the hearer and the doer of the word is that the hearer looks at it and then forgets. So, the issue with the hearer is not that he doesn't want to do it. The issue with the hearer is that he quickly forgets it. So, you see, goodwill, and I, I, I don't know, I think I was meditating about this yesterday, that the fact that you wish to do something or the fact that you wish not to do something is not enough reason or is not enough justification as to whether or not you are going to do it. You know, this is the reason, you know, a lot of people have issues with relationships because what you wish to do is different from what you actually do. So, a lot of times, people hurt people, right, not because they wish to hurt people, but because of what they do. Now, they are not bad persons inherently, right? But they just hurt people at the end of the day. So, why am I saying this? I'm saying this to let you see that the fact that you want to do the word is not enough reason why you would do the word. The difference, according to James, between one that hears the word and doesn't do it, and one that hears the word and does it, is actually not that they both don't want or It's not that one wants to do and one doesn't want to do It's that one forgets what he has heard, and then the other continues to look. All right? Is that the other continues. So you are more likely to do the word by constant exposure to the word. So if you are not doing the word, the problem is not that you don't wish to do the word. The problem is that the word is not constantly before you. Notice that when, um, G and when God was giving a command to Joshua about the books of the law, he says, the, uh, he says, this book of the law shall not depart out of thine eyes, but thou shalt meditate upon it day and night. Right? Sorry, it shall not depart out of thy mouth. Sorry. He says, but you shall meditate upon it day and night, and you shall observe to do all that is written therein. He says, lo, you will make your way prosperous, and you will have good success. Notice that he didn't tell him that, you know, um, just observe to do. Before you are able to do, the first thing is that it is constantly in your mouth. And that's one of the things about God's word. So, I, you know, I, 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 I was just led in my spirit to say this, you know, while we were praying, before we started teaching that. You see, what will make you a doer of the word fundamentally is a constant exposure to the word. You know, the, we, we do not realize that we are so impressionable. I think that's one of the problems that we, we believers don't note. We are, we are very impressionable. We are not as um, unimpressionable as we think. Even things that we do not consciously try to do, 
we find ourselves do it as a function of our exposure. Naturally, if you are in a if you are in a clique, naturally, without you guys deciding to have slangs, you will have slang. And sometimes you won't have the slangs because you guys coined it out. Sometimes you have the slang because there's somebody in your clique that constantly uses a particular phrase or a particular word. And then one time you're talking to your friend, and then you don't realize when you said just shouts maybe mad. Why? Because there's someone who does it constantly. And as a reason of your exposure to that person, you have picked up that trait. So the truth is this, is, and just as, as it works in the natural sense, it also works spiritually. You can be influenced by the word. You can be influenced by constant exposure to the word. As you expose yourself constantly to the word, you are getting changed. And that's the reason why when Paul was speaking in Romans chapter 12 from verse 2, Paul says that, you know, we're not conformed to this world, but we transformed by the renewing of the mind. Because the transformation actually is not that you started, you stopped stealing or you stopped lying. The transformation is not that you stopped committing adultery. The transformation is the word renewing your mind. So by constant exposure to the word, your mind is being renewed and the change is happening. That's where the change is happening. Now, as a reason of that change that happens, we now see, you know, something change in what you do. Now, the change in what you do did not happen necessarily because you just wanted to change what you do. No. The change was happening as your mind was being transformed. But because your mind has been transformed, there is now an inherent, or better still, there, is, there has to be a display of something that has happened within. So the problem of all times is that most believers focus too much on the horse that comes after the cart. They try to place the horse before the cart. No. There are some things that must happen in the back end, first of all. Before some things can happen, you know, in the front end, based on what people see. So it's just like, for example, you're trying to make someone who is a sinner. You're trying to meet a sinner, and then you're talking to the sinner that, you're, you know, you're, you're doing this bad habit, you're doing this bad habit. You're getting, you're getting it wrong. He is not doing the bad habits to become a sinner. No, he is doing the bad habits because he's a sinner. Hence, your first thing to fix up is the fact that he's a sinner as a reason of the nature of sin. The moment you can fix that, right, you've now reconfigured this man as one that has the Holy Ghost, one that is saved. Hence, good works can now proceed out of that. That's the mindset to have. And so, when I want to see someone do better, what I do is to load him with the word. You see, this is how to, this is how to get results as a teacher, or as a disciple. When I have something I want to fix, among the people that I teach or among people that I train, I don't just fix it by telling them, do this, do this, do this. Because the thing is this, is when you tell people to do and not to do, one of some things can happen. Number one, they can do it because you just told them to do it. And so when you're not there, they don't do it, right? Number two is that they will do it, right? But then at the end of the day, when contrasting information comes around, they do not have enough conviction to stand their ground. And this, this is one of the reasons why you have a lot of folks who, they were churchgoers at home. And then when they went to school, they, know, they lost their faith in that sense. Why? Because they were never grounded. They were never convicted. They were just doing things because they were told to, not because they understood it. And so as a Bible teacher, the primary means by which you elicit some particular kind of response in people is by teaching it. So if I want my folks to maybe be given to the flow of the things of the Spirit much better, what I do is not to tell them, I want you to flow in the things of the Spirit more. No, I teach on it consistently. By constantly teaching on it, I expose them to that reality. And because what I'm teaching them actually is a function of who they are, they are exposed to that information by the Spirit of God, and then the weakness of the Word causes them to walk in it. Hallelujah. So this is why you must realize that this thing is spiritual. 
Are you with me? As I expose them to their capabilities by the Spirit of God. So in teaching you the word, I'm opening your eyes to see, oh, this is who you are. This is who you become. This is what you can do. And as a reason of your exposure to those realities, it now causes you to walk in the same. Hallelujah. So that is the mindset to have. And so, as I said before, the difference between he who does the word and he who just hears the word and it's information in his head is the fact that the one who does the word constantly exposes himself to it because he realizes that there is a spiritual activity at work in the word. In the word is the power of God, which is the spirit of God. Hence, when the believer, who also was raised to life by the power of God, do not forget, when he exposes himself constantly, right, to words that are influenced by the spirit of God, he will definitely cause a change in his behavior. It will cause a change in his character. Because constantly he is being renewed by the word. Hallelujah. So that's the mindset to have, you know, as you receive the word. Because, and, and I think it's important to say this because, I mean, we are doing a book study. It's the book of Ephesians. And so there is always the tendency to be very academic when you are studying, particularly when you are doing a book study, all right, or when you are doing a topic study, a topical study, right? It's always, um, there's that um, bias. So you just want to go all academic. You know, you're looking at the Greek words, the Hebrew words, um, the... Uh, the context, the post-text, etc., etc., dissecting through verses. You must realize that the purpose of the word is not for it to stay in your head as information, also that you can walk around and say, you know, some words that people have never heard before. That's not the point. The point of it is that it must affect you. Your mind must be renewed by the word. And how would that happen? You constantly expose yourself to it. You constantly put it before you. You constantly go through your notes. You constantly listen to the sermon. Hallelujah. So that's the mindset to have. So we continue today. On Ephesians. So last week we spoke about, you know, um, a brief history of the church. <coughs> Excuse me. We spoke about, um, about the brief history of the Ephesian church or the church in Ephesus. You know, spoke about how that uh, spoke about the location, right, of um, of the of, of of Ephesus and how that it had a major implication, right, on the state of the city. Basically, how that the city was a commercial capital as a reason of number one, its location. Number two the temple of the goddess Diana, right, or Artemis, right, um, which um, was a primary, which was a place for adultery, to be realistic. And then, of course, it used to cause a mass influx of people into the city. And so it was boosting trade, right, within that city. And I explained how that, if you're supposed to liken it to a day like ours, or, you know, something a lot more, um, um, a, a lot more relatable, it's basically the Lagos of today, the commercial capital of Nigeria, the way everywhere is always, you know, you know busy and, you know, Etc. Etc. And I also spoke about how you know the Ephesian Church was founded, about how you know it was a function of Paul's ministry journey into Ephesus, right, in Acts 19, and how that the entirety of Asia was covered in two two years and about three months. Of course, it's not the entirety of Asia as we know it today, right? But the entirety of Asia, which was you know quite large relatively, was covered you know, in two years and three months by this man. And do not forget, this was in the middle of, you know, all manner of things you can think about. These men were driven by money. These men were driven by, you know, sexual perversion, etc., etc. And yet you had a church, you know, and I spoke about this also last week, how that compared to the Corinthian church or the Galician church, Paul did not have anything to correct in the Ephesian church. Actually, he did not. Do you know what it means that as an apostle, you come back, you know, you hear of your church, you hear of, you know, of a particular church that you planted, etc., etc., and you have almost nothing to correct, save to, you know, to get them established the more in what they have received, 
right, to, to fill their hearts with a consciousness of who they have become in Christ. And just to give them a couple of instructions here and there. Almost had nothing to correct. So, in fact, this was a grown church, you know, a sound church. Do not forget a sound church in the middle of sexual perversion and and um 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 um, um and a terrible hunger for wealth and money. And you know, I tried to explain how that what that shows you is that it is possible to have a sound and vibrant church even in the middle of inconsistencies, right? In as much as we should do our best to ensure that you know we do our best to reduce the impact of those inconsistencies. You know, we do our best possible to see how we can make things better or more viable for believers. We must see, however, the possibility that, you know, the fact that there is perversion around us is not enough reason for us to lose our stance. And that's one of the things you see from the efficient church, right? So, spoke about that extensively. I spoke about how that, you know, um, Paul had, you know, one of his longest um, ministry um, sojourns in Ephesus. And that when he left, he left also as well his disciple, Timothy, as a pastor here. And do not also forget, I think it's also important to say that Timothy, as I've always told you guys, was a pastor at a really young age. Historians say at the age of 17, this man was pastoring the Ephesian church. The Ephesian church was relatively about 3,000 in those days. So do you know what it means for a 17-year-old to pastor a church of 3,000? Today, what do 17-year-olds do in our churches? You know, do um, um, He lives in me. Yeah, you know, shows you how that we have a lot of misplaced priority. You know, you, you see you see someone of 20, 21 years doing the work of ministry and it seems like an anomaly to people. No, you are the one that is the anomaly. You are the one that is the problem. Actually, the disciples of Jesus is that when they followed Jesus were all teenagers. All of them, they were all teenagers as a matter of fact. So it shows you that, you know, there, the anomaly is in our understanding of the way ministry is supposed to be done. Right. When you find a 20-something-year-old 20, 20 guy, you know, a guy in his early 20s, doing the work of ministry, that's a norm. That, because that's when he can do it. That's when he has energy. That's when he can move from place to place. That's the truth. You can't expect a man of 50-something or 60-something to be jumping from place to place. You just can't. Because of the sake of the work, there is a limit to what he can do. All right? So that's just in passing anyway. So we spoke about Ephesians. So we started Ephesians chapter 1 from verse 1 uh, last week. Ephesians 1 and verse 1. And I'm just going to just going to read Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 1. Okay, it says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. And I explained, you know, what it means when it says, um, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, that the word apostle there means apostolos, which means a messenger or one that is sent. I tried to explain how that it's not referring to, you know, I think I'm not sure I said this last week but you see um the the idea about ministry gifts and hopefully soon enough i'm going to teach extensively on ministry gifts right when i um, i'm going to teach extensively on it soon enough hopefully the thing is being an apostle is not is not as luxurious as people make it look all right the word apostle is the greek word apostolos it means to be sent that's simply what an apostle is an apostle is a messenger an apostle if, if you look at the way the church regarded apostles Right, and I'm not talking about foundational apostles now because, quite frankly, nobody else today, nobody today can become a foundational apostle. But that office was reserved for, I mean, the 11, all right, or the 12, if you add Matthias to it, all right. But an apostle really is one that is sent. When you look at the way Paul was, you don't see anything glamorous in being an apostle. Do you realize? Because the way it was with Paul was actually that they were sent out to go and do the work. 
you understand me? So, the Apostle Paul, in Acts 12, when Agabus signified by the Spirit that, you know, there was going to be a famine, one of the apostolic assignments of Paul was that he should go and, you know, he should send relief to people that needed it. So, it's not, you know, in as much as, of course, it's not bad to honor men of God, you understand, and, you know, you know, have, let them have the best of experiences, etc., etc. I'm just letting you see that, you know, this unnecessary craving for names, you know, to call an apostle. You know, there's even something about us that makes us believe that, you know, if you are called pastor, it's not it, unless you're called apostle. You know, when you say apostle, ah, if, no, that's not, that's not it. First of all, is you can't be an apostle and be in a place. I think that's, that's one thing that people need to realize. Like, you can't be, you can't be in a place pastoring a church and call yourself an apostle. It's not about the name. It's about the work. What makes you an apostle is the work you do. It's not the name you are called. All right? So you are called an apostle. I'm going to teach about this more extensively when I teach on ministry gifts. You are called an apostle because of the work you do. In fact, when you check on the ministry gifts as written in the Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11, you realize that all of those words are verbs. They are translations are actually verbs in the Greek. They are not nouns. They are doing words. So you are a teacher. You teach. You are a pastor. You shepherd. All right? You are an evangelist. You go to preach. You are an apostle. You are sent. You are a prophet. You you prophesy, you speak forth, you announce, you proclaim the counsel of God. All right? So it's, it's not something you say that you are. It's something you do. Hence, you are called it. That's where apostleship works. So you can be in a particular church, be pastor in a particular place. You don't move around to do new work, you know, to start up work and place a pastor over it and call an apostle. You're not an apostle. You're a pastor. All right? And it doesn't make you any less. And I think that's something people need to realize. A prophet is not any more than a pastor. A prophet is a prophet. A pastor is a pastor. You don't have to feel bad that you're a pastor. Another people are called prophets. In fact, the ideology, and let me also add this too. Do you realize that according to biblical terms, the pastor thinks the bishop, not the other way around. Not the other way around. Because in 1 Timothy 3, is where we hear about bishops. It says, if any man desire the office of a bishop, he desires a good thing. He now talks about the criteria in 1 Timothy 3 for the ordination of a bishop. And who was he expecting to do that? It was Paul was speaking to Timothy as a pastor. So Paul was giving Timothy, the pastor of the Ephesian church, he was giving him instructions as to how the ordination of bishops are supposed to go. All right. So, yeah. So, so <laughs> a bishop doesn't ordain pastors according to scriptural terms. No. A bishop doesn't ordain pastors. A pastor ordains a bishop. All right, a bishop is a leader within the church. A bishop is not a higher man. He's not. All right. So let's just but oftentimes what you realize is is often in a bid to call yourself one special thing. You don't need it. If at the end of the day, you don't need the name. Oftentimes, what your work will let people know the name you are. I hope you realize that until very recently, I don't even know if it has changed. The pastor of Deeper Life Christian um church, um Deeper Life. Christian, I think it's Deeper Life Christian Church, I don't know exactly how it's called, was as always been called Bro WF Kumui. Bro. And the, the, of course, it's not hard to know that he's the pastor of one of the, you know, one of the leading you know, churches in terms of number, leading denomination in terms of number in Nigeria. And he calls himself Bro WF Kumui. Bro Kumui. All right. It's not hard to know that, first of all, the man is a pastor. He pastors the church. Number two, he's an apostle. 
because he plants works in different places. He goes to places and starts up new works in those places. So it's not about the name. Nobody cares about the name. It's about doing the work. The work determines what you are called, not the other way around. You don't determine what you are called, all right? The work determines what you are called. All right, I just thought to say that along the way. So Paul and Apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints which are at Ephesus. And I said about, you know, the word saints. Right? We did quite some study about it, how that the believer is the saint in Christ Jesus, all right? The believer is not trying to be a saint. He's not becoming a saint. No, the believer is a saint. You know, Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 says that you're a chosen generation, you're a royal priesthood, you're a holy nation. So the believer is a member of a holy nation. All right. You know, it's quite interesting. And I, I, I always say this, how we have been made to quote that verse over and over and over again in children's church. But it's like we never understood what we're saying, because how does it make any sense that you tell people like people say they are, they are, they are members of a holy nation and yet still have ask God to make them holy? Just doesn't make any sense. All right. You're a member of a holy nation. Hence, you are holy. All right. You, you do not do anything to become holy because the holy the holiest of all for example did not do something to become ho- the holiest of all it is called the holiest of all because god you know as a reason of um god's presence in quotes now let me put it in quotes actually god's presence in quotes tabernacled in that place hence it was called the holiest of all the same thing when a place is called um the the um uh, uh when you hear for example that the utensils that were used in the temple were holy they didn't do anything to become holy. They didn't do anything. The difference is that those utensils are used in the service or in the worship of God. Hence, they are called holy. So holiness is not a thing you do. It's a state you come into as a reason of what you are set apart onto. Are we together? Do also realize that whatever gold was used for the temple would have also been the kind of gold that could have been used for any other thing, making of ornaments, making of earrings, making of so on and so forth. In fact, the kind of gold used for, in fact, it's not impossible that there would have been better gold outside that was used for other things. But you see, the moment any kind of gold is used for the worship of the things of God or for the temple, it is now reckoned as holy, meaning it is set apart. The word holy means agios. It doesn't mean white, because whenever we hear agios, what comes to our mind? Whenever we hear holy, you know, what comes to our mind immediately is white, color white. But remember, the golden lampstand is gold. Is gold. Hallelujah. The blood of the old covenant, right, that used to that was used to purify the utensils of the temple was red. Yet it was classified as what? Holy. Why? Because it is set apart. So holy does not mean white. Holy just means set apart. Set apart unto the worship of the dates. Alright? So spoke about that. An apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. To the faithful in Christ Jesus. You know, I just want to say that that is not the saints at Ephesus, right? That is positional. To the faithful in Christ Jesus is not positional. Are we together? The faithful in Christ Jesus is not positional. The faithful in Christ Jesus is a function of what you do. So you need to be able to place a, a man's realities in Christ Jesus and commendations for what a man does. So Paul was also commending folks who were faithful. And of course, based on what I've said about the Ephesian church, you know that Paul was proud of this particular church. Hence, what he was saying was as a reflection of the way this church had, you know, the things that this church had done, right? So he was regarding them as a faithful church. Like, because of the things you have done, because of how you stood your ground, being sound in doctrine, despite the controversies and inconsistencies around, 
you know, he reckoned them as faithful. All right, and then he spoke to them that particular way. <laughs> All right, let's continue. Let's continue. So verse 2, we start today's teaching. Verse 2, it says, Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you were to open this in the KJV, all right, if you were to open this in the KJV, you'll see that the word B there is an ethics. The word B is an ethics. So, and I, I think I've said this before to you guys about words in ethics, that words in ethics were put in there by the translators to help us better understand, right? But unfortunately, um, sometimes it doesn't necessarily help, all right? Sometimes it poses a different, sometimes it could almost pose a different meaning, all right? And so, um, in Bible interpretation, you are permitted at times to, you know, to keep it away while you try to understand better what the verse is talking about, all right? To make more, make much more sense of it, because if you are to leave it here now, let's talk about the word grace a little. The word grace, uh, grace. So, the word grace in the Greek is the Greek is the word charis, charis, c h a r i s, charis, and it means a graciousness in manner or act, a graciousness in manner or act. Um, it refers to the divine influence upon a life. And its reflection in life. Sorry, the divine influence upon a heart and its reflection in life. Uh, that English is a lot, but let me just move on to places where it was used so you can understand it better. And I just want to say that one of the rules of, of um one of the rules of Bible interpretation, right, is to learn to check where a particular word is used. All right. Do not do not try to give Bible words your own understanding, right? Try to look at Bible words, Bible way, all right? First of all is check it in context. How is it used in context? Number two, check it in the Greek. What is its meaning? Number three, how was the word used in other places? And if possible, how was the word used by that same writer in other places, all right? So let's continue. Um, favor. Let's look at Luke chapter, sorry, Luke 1 verse 30, grace. Luke 1 verse 30, the word grace. Luke chapter 1. And verse 30. Okay. It says, And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. The word favor there is the Greek word charis, right? Meaning grace, right? Let's go again to Romans chapter 3 and verse 24. Romans 3 and verse 24. Romans 3 verse 24, it says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Says so being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Let's see other places. Second Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 1. Second Corinthians 6 and verse 1. It says, We then, as workers together with him, beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. So one of the things that you will see about grace is that it always involves giving. So in, in, in what we saw in Luke 1 and verse 30, the angel appeared to Mary and says, you have found favor. So it was something about what God gave benevolently to Mary. You have found favor with God. Romans chapter 3 and verse 24, right? Talks about receiving the grace of God. Now, um, um, chapter 6 and verse 1, although this grace refers to the grace in the work of ministry, because I don't want to do an in-depth study today on 
the word grace, but you, as you go through scripture, you realize that you actually see the word grace used for salvation. You also see it's used for the work of ministry. All right. So in this context, it's talking about the work of ministry. And then it says that, <coughs> it says that we then, as workers together with him, beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. All right. So he tells you not to receive the grace. So the grace is something that is given. So in grace, you always consistently see a benevolent nature, a giving of one to another. You know, there's this verse we oftentimes quote, you know, um, the benediction, a very common benediction in the church, where we say, um, we share the grace. We say the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the sweet fellowship of the Holy Spirit. He says, um, be with us now forevermore. Amen. Now, oftentimes, what's, it's unfortunate that it's quite clear that we don't understand what we are saying, or the church doesn't understand what the church is saying. First of all, let me go start from this. Whoever made it a rule that that benediction was is supposed to be how you close service? Nobody. Because first of all, I've always I've even always wondered why like we took that benediction so seriously. Because in fact, that was the only place. I hope you realize that that was the only place. That was the only book that ended that way. So it's not even like every other book ended that way. That was the only book. But somehow it became a generally acceptable rule. That that's what it is. That's my one. Number two is that people often think that when we speak about the grace or when we share that grace, that we are talking about three different things. So, oh, the grace of God. We want the grace of God. We want the... Um, um, the uh, how is it? I think I've mixed it. Grace of Lord Jesus Christ. The love of God. Yeah. So we want the grace of... You know, the Lord Jesus Christ, which is one. We want the love of God, that's two. We want the sweet fellowship of the Holy Spirit, that's three, to be with us. It shows that we really do not understand what we are saying. Because if you understand, you realize that the grace of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ is the love of God. Hallelujah. Because, you say the grace of Jesus Christ, right, which is the giving, that's the giving of Jesus, the work of salvation. Are we together? Remember what we said about the benevolent nature of God seen in his graciousness, which is the word carries. So when we talk about the grace of God or the grace of Jesus Christ, it is the giving of Jesus for our sins. Hallelujah. And that is the love of God. Praise God. That is the love of God. So the love of God is seen in that he gave Jesus to die for our sins. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God in so doing loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Hallelujah. So the giving of the son is an expression of the love of God. Hallelujah. And as a function of the giving of the son, right, what has the believer received by faith in the son of God, the Holy Spirit? Ephesians 1, Ephesians 1 verse 13. He says, you also, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation in him also after that you believed you were sealed with the holy spirit of promise hallelujah which is the earnest of your inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession hence when you speak about right the fellowship of the spirit the fellowship of the spirit is not something that happens when that that you look for the fellowship of the spirit is what happens for the believer in christ jesus because the word fellowship there is the greek word koinonia i think i've spoken about koinonia before right it refers to a communion a sharing together all right a common fellowship all right it is one that we have received we have received because the, and that's the reason why when john was speaking in first john chapter one he says i write this thing unto you that you may have fellowship with us right he says and truly our fellowship is with the father and with his son jesus christ all right so we are in fellowship with god already we're in fellowship with the spirit of god hallelujah 
It is what we have received in salvation. And so when we preach the gospel, we are trying to extend the hand of fellowship to others. Amen. So what we have as the grace, really, is not three different concepts. It is one and the self-same concept spoken about in three different ways. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is the love of God, hallelujah, and is the fellowship of the Spirit. Because, because the, the, the fact that the believer has the Spirit today is an expression of the fact that God loves man, that God has given man his son. And as a reason of man receiving of his son, or of the sacrifice of his son, the man has the indwelling of the spirit in his heart forever. All right? So, I just thought to say that. So, all that was to explain how that when we see the word grace, we speak, up, we speak about the, benef- the, the, the benevolent character or the benevolent nature of God. Hallelujah. So, uh, let's continue in our study. So, the word grace refers to benevolence, giving nature of God, and whatever it gives. I've already spoke about the word be in it leaks, isn't it leaks? So, it wasn't a prayer. So, what you see in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 2 is not Paul praying for grace to be unto them. No. Paul was saying, Paul was actually affirming a reality. But before I spoke, speak about that, let's do a little, you know, word study on the word peace as well. Peace. So, it says, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, all right? So it's important that he also puts a context to this thing, that the grace and the peace I'm speaking about here is not from me to you. It's from God and Jesus to you. So the question will be, are these things that need to happen or are these things that have already happened? So by context, this grace and peace will actually be referring to those that come from God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look at it. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Romans 5 and verse 1. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Alright, Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. It says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our what? Lord Jesus Christ. He says, being justified. So, this peace comes as a reason of justification by faith. Hallelujah. Let's continue. All right. Uh, so let me just explain a little about that. So, as a reason of justification by faith, we are no longer foreigners or citizens or, 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 or strangers. We are now fellow citizens with the saints. We are now members of the household of God. You see, that is our peace. Hallelujah. Our peace is in the fact that we are no longer far away from God. Hallelujah. Our peace is in the fact that we are no longer enemies of God. That as a reason of the work of justification. Hallelujah. The word in Romans, from Romans 4 verse 25, he says, He was delivered of our offenses. He was raised again for our justification. Then, into chapter 5 from verse 1, he now says, Therefore being justified by faith. So, how did this work of justification happen? Because he was delivered for our offenses and he was raised for our justification. Because he has now been justified, or because we have now been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right? So you have to make sense of these words. These words are not just, you know, grammatical uh, uh, um, um, expressions. They're not just words that are there to bamboozle you. They are words that actually have meanings. So because a man is justified by faith, right? And what does justification mean? Justification is the ability for a man to stand before God as though he had never sinned before. 
all right if you guys remember your crk you remember that that justification means so in fact just from simple english justified so it's as though this man has not sinned that's range of justification like now i am here before you and it's as though i i did nothing before all right so because a man has been justified he now has peace with god meaning he can now have a relationship with god look at ephesians 2 ephesians 2 from verse 14. ephesians 2 from verse 14. Ephesians chapter 2, from verse 14. You know, let me say this. You see, do not forget and do not, you know, don't put this away from you that you are at peace with God. Hallelujah. You are at peace with God. You see, God is not condemning you. God is not trying to see if you are going to fail or if you are going to fall. God is not watching out and saying, let me see if he's going to embarrass me. No, you are at peace with God. What the accuser does is to make you think that God is holding a grudge against you. It's to make you think that God is, on the other hand, holding a whip ready to beat you. No. However, what we see in Christ Jesus is one who is a giver and who always keeps giving. You know, if the woman that Jesus met by the well from the very instant already knew that who she was talking about who she was about talking to was the messiah very likely she wouldn't have gone to meet him and in fact you would even think that when jesus was talking to her jesus really did not know much about her because i mean how would jesus talk to somebody who already had five husbands and then the person she was staying with was not even her husband naturally from you know from a human perspective you would expect that you know that would be the last person that jesus would ever talk to Yet, Jesus had a conversation with this woman completely. Not only did he have a conversation with her, historically, right, this woman was the first person to announce Jesus as the Christ. This woman was both a Samaritan and a woman. I, I think I must say that. In those two cases, it, it according to their custom, nullifies her. First of all, she's a Samaritan. A Samaritan is never supposed to be found in the same place with a Jew. Number two, she's a woman. If we are even talking about people that were announced in, they should be a man. But a woman did. Jesus was not ashamed of her. Jesus did not say, see, see, wait, wait, wait. You just, you just got converted. So this is not, that's not what Jesus did. He was okay with the woman going to noise abroad concerning salvation. Hallelujah. So you see, it's the devil that tries to make you think that you're not good enough. It's the devil that tries to make you think that God is trying to, you know, throw a whip at you. No, no, no. God, on the other hand, is always there. There's one thing we know about God very clearly. According to 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 19, he says to wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. That's all God has ever been trying to do. Reconciling the world unto himself. He says not imputing their trespasses unto them and has committed unto us the words, the word of reconciliation. So all that we see in God is his ability to reconcile, is his willingness to reconcile man unto himself. That's all we see in God. So do not ever think that God is trying to lash you or trying to beat you. No, it's the devil, the accuser that is making you think so. Hallelujah. And what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to cast the accuser out of your heart by the word. You confess God's word to yourself that God loves me. In him, I found peace. I'm at peace with him because I've been justified by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Glory to Jesus. Ephesians 2, 14. Ephesians 2, 1, verse 14. It says, for he is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Be 
pay attention to this. He says, He is our peace. How is he our peace? He has made both one and has broken out the middle of partition between us. I mean, I've explained this already. I know I explained it during um, um, Caruso Camp meeting. I think I also explained it while I was explaining Experience Salvation Part 2. That when he says he is our peace, and he has broken down the middle wall of partition. The middle wall of partition is not necessarily the middle wall of partition separating um, men from God. It's the middle wall of partition separating Jews from Gentiles. So what, G- what Jesus did in his sacrifice for sins was that by his death, he first of all fulfilled the requirement of the law. Hallelujah. You know, Colossians 2 and verse 14 says, having blotted out the unrighteous of ordinances that was against us, even that were contrary to us, he says, and um, having nailed it on the cross, took it out of the way. So, as a reason of Jesus' death on the cross, upon the tree, he took away the requirement of the law. He blotted out the unrighteous of ordinances. Hallelujah. You know, and when we speak about ordinances, primarily ordinances refer to the law. So, he says, by his death on the cross, he blotted out the unwriting of ordinances against us. Hence, the, 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 the statements of the law have no power against us anymore. Of course, by us, it will refer to primarily the Jews, not the Gentiles, because the Gentiles were not under the law. So, as a reason of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, right, of his death on the cross, because that's the question as to why couldn't he have died any other way? Why did he have to die on the cross? Because by him dying on the cross, he fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. Hallelujah. Galatians 3 and verse 13, it says, For you are no longer under the cause of the law, right? He says, um, 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 For Christ has been made the cause for us, for it is written, Cause is everyone who is hung on a tree. So as a reason of the death of Jesus on the tree, he took away, he has already satisfied the righteous requirements of the law, and he broke down the middle wall of partition that separated the Jews from the Gentiles. Hallelujah. And so because there is now, the separation has been removed from Jews and Gentiles, he could now pay for the sacrifice of the sins of them as one. So in removing the middle wall of partition, which is the law, he now brings both Jew and Gentile together as one, and then dies for them and rises again for their sins, all together as one. All right? So he is our peace, right? He has made both one. So the peace is primarily the fact that he made both one. And so, having made both one, he now offered a sacrifice for them at once. Okay? He says, it's our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us. And how, how did he do that um, making both one? And how is he our peace? Verse 15 says this. He says, having abolished in his... Okay, sorry. Verse 15 shows us how he broke down the middle wall of partition. Sorry. He says, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Can you see what I'm saying again? The law of commandments contained in ordinances for to make in himself of twain one new man. So that's what he was trying to do. So primarily of the Jews and Gentiles, he removed the separating factor, which was the law. And both of them are now the same. Jew and Gentile, all are under sin. As a reason of that, he could now pay the sacrifice for both of them at once. And that's why he continues in verse 16 to say, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were foul, for to them that are nigh. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Hence, how is he our peace? Because through him, both Jews and Gentiles now have access to the Father by the Spirit. Hallelujah. So, we have peace with God, not because, you know, God likes to smile at us, or because he likes to be cute, or because we look cute, you know, because we are small babies. No, that's not the point. We have peace with God because we now have access to God. Because we that were strangers and foreigners to him, right, have now been made fellow citizens. Hallelujah. And we've now been brought unto him. 
glory to Jesus. And because of that, as a reason of the Spirit of God, we have access to Him. Hence, we are now we now have peace with God. That is why Jesus is our peace. So back to Ephesians one. Ephesians chapter one. So now grace, as we have seen, the grace of God has been given to a man. So Paul wouldn't have been saying as regards salvation here that grace should you know should come unto you. No. Rather, he would have been he would what he would have been doing here is to speak to them their reality. So it's not grace should be unto you, but rather you have grace. It's not peace should come unto you, but rather you have peace, at least in this context. And do not forget that the peace we are talking about here is not the peace of situations, it's the peace as a function of salvation, the peace in that there is no more enmity between us and God. This doesn't mean that the believer who has peace with God cannot have situations where he requires peace in the world. Are you with me? There are two different situations, all right? A man can be in peace with God and yet require peace in natural situations. Are we together? That's very possible. However, fundamentally, a man who is saved is at peace with God. A man who is saved has received the graciousness of God. So what Paul was doing here wasn't praying for them that peace and grace will come to them. Rather, it was affirming a spiritual reality, which was that grace and peace to you. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Affirming a reality, not necessarily praying for them to receive something. All right? So that is that for them. So grace to you and peace from our Lord from our from god our father and from the lord jesus christ so now the next verse says blessed be the god and the father of our lord jesus christ he says who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in christ now let's you know do a word study there now the word blessed there is the greek word eugletos e-u-g-l-e-t-o-s eugletos now of course it's the word that means you know to um to speak um, let me let me just see it very well okay it means blessed or it means priest blessed or priest and it's from the greek word eulogio eulogio now eulogio actually means to speak well of or to invoke a benediction or to make a benediction to speak well of basically all right uh so the word eugletos is from the greek word eulogio and the word eulogio i mean it's got it from two words eu eu and logos Logos can refer to, has a myriad of things it could refer to. It could refer to an intent. It could refer to something that is spoken. It could refer to something that is written. All right? So, Logos actually has a myriad of things it could mean. So, you means, you means to prosper or to become better off. And Logos means, Logos could mean what is spoken. So, when you bring the both of them together, eulogio, you, you could actually either mean to speak so that one can become better off or to speak as a reason of one being better off. Let me say it again. Eulogio, therefore, you being to prosper or to become better off and logos, meaning what is spoken. Eulogio together, therefore, could either refer to, you know, a speaking because somebody has prospered or because someone is, you know, has been made better or a speaking in order to make someone prosper. Are we together? And this is why it's important because you see, when he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. So there is, so we bless him because he has blessed us. 
Are we together? The word, the second blessed there as well is the Greek word eulogio. So to put it in a better context, we speak well of him, right? We speak well of his prosperity, of how great he is, because he has first of all spoken us into prosperity. He has first of all spoken us into a better life. Are we together? So our response of blessing him or invoking a benediction on him is because he first of all spoke us into that. Amen. And so you also have to pay attention that when he says he has blessed us with all spiritual blessings, right, in heavenly places in Christ, you need to pay attention. What are these spiritual blessings? That's the next question. What are these spiritual blessings? All right. Now, the word blessings there, interestingly, the word blessings there is also in Italics. The word blessings again is the word eulogia. So, um, eulogio is what you do, eulogia is what is done. Do you understand? So, um, the word blessings is also from. The same word is the word eulogia from the same word eulogio. All right, so we're still speaking about the same thing. So it's not speaking about something necessarily substantial. He's speaking that it's actually refers to a speaking into prosperity. All right, so he's speaking to make one better. All right, so he says spiritual. Um, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ? So it's the word heavenly that's in, in sorry, the word places that is in ethics. So now let's pay attention to it now. He says he has blessed us with all spiritual blessings. It's important to note that these blessings, therefore, are spiritual. That's number one. Number two, they are in in the heavenly. So a way to say it would be, he has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly in Christ Jesus. So two things about this blessing is that number one, it is spiritual. So a natural man, pay attention, cannot have access to these blessings. This, therefore, would invalidate the idea that these blessings can be material prosperity. It is, it's interesting. It's interesting what a doctrine of materialism can make people say. People will just say all manner of things when they want to justify materialism. The question is, you wonder how exactly people can read, you know, the context of, you know, material blessings into this. It just shows how, uh, uh, I'm trying to be light with words, it shows how selfish, that doctrine has made people become. You know, and I, and I posted about it on my status a while ago, how that at the core of the doctrine of material prosperity is a selfish nature. That's the truth. You, you, you have to be selfish to believe that the faithfulness of God is constantly predicated upon how good, how good things happen to you all the time. All right? So when good things don't happen, you question God's faithfulness. When good things happen, you know, you say God is faithful. Do you understand? And oftentimes, your definition of good things is you got a job. Do you understand? You got a job, uh, you got a car, right? Etc. etc. Um, you are not being persecuted, right? That's your definition of good things, right? So it, 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 it's a selfish mindset if you realize, because that means that you, you are basically living your life as though the entire world revolves around you. That's the truth. Even even atheists have come to see and have come to believe. Actually, you know, there's a concept of in, in, in the argument for the existence of God. There's a concept of the greater good. How that you never can really tell that a, an act is good or evil because every act has equal effects. So, for a very good example, when you go to meet maybe the doctor, and then he gives you an injection. Now, inherently, that pain is like, of course, you feel a pain of a pain pricking your body. But at the end of the day, that act was for good. Are you with me? And so, what you would consider evil 
is actually inherently an act for good, even though it looks like it's evil. So there, there's also that debate, you know, with um with atheists as to or you know even naturalists generally as to the idea of the greater good or the greater evil. How that you can never really say an act is evil or good, in the fact in the sense that you never really know what the real effect of that act is. But that's also that's an argument. That's a discussion for later on. But what I was also trying to explain, you know, about this context was in um, relation to the fact that. It's not about good things happening to you all the time. Do you understand? That's not the point here. Do you understand? It's not about, you know, God giving you a car, giving you a nice house, giving you this, giving you that, and then when he doesn't give you those things, he's not faithful. That's not even the point of it at all. First of all, is that that's wrong. Number two is that that's not even the context of what is spoken about here. These things are spiritual blessings in heavenly. All right? Spiritual blessings. They pertain to the spirit. That's my one. So they're actually blessings that affect spiritual things they are not blessings that affect natural things and they are a function of the position of the man in christ in heaven hallelujah because the man in christ is seated with christ jesus he's seated he's seated with christ in the heavenly places all right as we will see in ephesians 2 okay so this is a positional blessing and it's also a blessing that has to do with the spirit and so we see that that verse ends with a colon which lets you know that the subsequent verse is to explain what has been said so let's dive in so verse 4 it says as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before this in love. Now, this is a very interesting verse. I like this verse a lot. And you'll soon see why. I want to ask you a question. Of course, I know you can't answer, but I want you to just, I want you to think about it. And this is the question. When he says that according as he has chosen, now please pay attention, pay very keen attention. When he says, according as he has chosen us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Is he saying that he chose us before the foundation of the world? Pay attention, just calm down. Is it that he's saying he chose us before the foundation of the world? Or that he chose that whoever let me put it this way. Is it that he chose us before the foundation of the world? Or that he chose that in him, or that he chose that anyone in him would be holy and without blame before him in law? Let me come again. Is it that he chose us to be in him from the foundation of the world so that we can be holy and without blame before him in law? Or that he chose that in anyone in him, or better still, he chose that in him anyone in him would be holy and without blame before him in love from the foundation of the world let me go over the question again because it can be very tricky again is it that he chose us to be in him for the foundation of the world so more or less he chose we that we are in him he has already chosen us from the beginning that these are the ones that are going to be in me from, the, from the, before the foundation of the world or he chose that anyone in him so it, so it's a positional thing or he chose that anyone in him would be holy and without blame before him in love, before the foundation of the world. Let, before, before we answer that, let's, answer, let's look at the consequence of this. Now, there, there's the rule of Bible interpretation that, and I think I've said this before, that the idea of context, when we talk about context in Bible interpretation, context doesn't just refer to reading a chapter or reading a book. Bible, biblical context actually is reading the entire thing because you are and I, I was saying this to a friend a couple of days ago that you see every teaching has its focus 
every teaching has its focus. It's impossible for a, for one teaching to say all there is about a particular subject. Are we together? And that's the reason why you need to hear about something in its entirety before you are able to affirm what the person is saying. For example, I was saying, I was saying this to a friend. Now, when I teach, for example, and I want to teach on salvation, there is a focus I have in mind. Oftentimes, if what I want to teach on is letting people see how that in the work of salvation, their input is not involved. It has its own focus. It's different from when I want to now also show them that even though your input is not involved in salvation, as a function of salvation, you are expected to live a certain way. Now, those two things are not... Um, what's the word? They are not mutually exclusive. In fact, they are both part of salvation. However, the focus for each of them is different. Are we together? And so, for example, you would realize that when Paul, when um, you know Jesus was speaking about faith, for example, you would think all there is to faith is just to believe in your heart, right? Because I mean, Jesus said that um, if you have um, 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 faith, like a mustard seed, right? You see onto this mountain without move and without cast into the ocean, right? And then um 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 it would it, it um that, that would happen all right but the question you should ask yourself is that why will you not stand in front of a mountain now and just tell the mountain oh yeah get into the sea because you realize that there was a context to which he was speaking so there is more to faith than just jumping on one particular verse i mean the same jesus said ask and you receive Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. All right? Uh, uh, so, you know, all there is to faith. You know, we, 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 for, for with man, it may be impossible. For with God, nothing shall be possible. Only believe. If you will believe, you will see, you know, you will see the miraculous. You know, and, you know, what, what oftentimes happens is that people capitalize on one verse so much that they lose sight of every other topic or every other subject that is also involved in that particular concept. Are we together? And so, Jesus in speaking about faith makes you look like if you will be, if you will say in your heart, all right, and you will not doubt, right, and you believe that whatsoever you say will come to pass, you shall have whatsoever you say. That's what Jesus says in Mark eleven, verse twenty-three to twenty-four. All right. So it makes you look like everything there is to receiving, right, is just believing. But then you get to uh, the book of James, James chapter, I think chapter 4, James 4. And then he says that you ask and you receive not. You pray and you do not get answers. Why? Because you pray and miss. Now that's confusing. It's confusing because Jesus already tells us that all we need to do is just to believe. If we believe, whatever we ask, we're going to receive. But then... James gives another important context to it, which is that what? You can pray and not receive. Because if you look at all that Jesus says, you just think all there is, is, is not possible for a man to pray and not receive. So far he has faith in his heart. But then you realize also, that there is also the concept of you praying along or according to the will of God. You not praying and miss. So there is a concept of praying and miss, meaning you can actually make mistakes in prayer. So, why am I saying all this? To make you realize that when it comes to scripture or topics in scripture, there's such a thing as biblical context where it has to be consistent with every other laid foundation of the Bible. 
you know you don't just arrive and this and this is one of the reasons why when i hear some particular doctrinal assertions i'm like this doesn't make any sense this cannot stand the old water when you try to make sense of something from just one verse and every other verse doesn't align with it, it doesn't make any sense are you with me? Or even if it makes sense from three verses, but it doesn't align with every other foundational concepts in scripture, one or, one or two things is wrong. Is either you are wrong with this new interpretation you just found, or your understanding of foundational concepts is faulty. That's the problem, because they must align. And this is a way to always think. As you, as you go through your Bible study or your Bible interpretation, always ask yourself, what is the effect of this new thing I just landed upon on every other concept that's how to think as 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 we go on in our study we're going to see better but when i begin to talk about predestination we're going to understand better how this affects some topics all right so let's continue uh so we see so you know we, right now we're trying to figure out who can be saved who can be saved of course as, as you see from scripture first much of the two from verse 3 to 4. First Timothy 2 from verse 3 to 4. He says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. He says, He would have all men to be saved and to come unto the truth. So God would have all men to be saved. So God wants all men to be saved. Simple. Not, not, not that hard to see. John chapter 3 and verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. It says that whoever or whosoever believes in Him will not perish. All right? Or should not perish, but have everlasting life. Whoever believes in him. So it's a case of whoever. Whosoever believes will not perish. You will have everlasting life. Hallelujah. Other places to see as well. Uh, look at... Um, where is this now? Sorry. Look at um, John chapter... John chapter 5 and verse 24. John chapter 5 and verse 24. All right, John 5, verse 24, it says, Very, very, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me has everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death, death to life. So, he that heareth. So, so far you hear and you believe, you have received life, right? You shall not come into condemnation, you are passed from death to life. John chapter 7, verse 37, right? On that last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out. He said, If anyone thirsts, anyone, let him come unto me and drink, right? He says, as the scripture, either believe it on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. So Jesus said, if anyone who is thirsty, let him come. Hallelujah. So any man can be saved. And it's very important that I'm laying this foundation, actually. The fact that any man can be saved. All right. Romans chapter 10 from verse 8. Romans chapter 10 from verse 8. He says, um, but what does it say? What, what, what does it say? The word is not even in thy heart and in thy mouth. That is the word of faith which you preach. That if you believe in your heart, the Lord Jesus, and confess to your mother, God has raised it from the dead, you will be saved. Right? For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, for, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Now look at what it says in Romans 10, from verse 11. Romans 10, from verse 11. It says, For the scripture said, Whosoever shall believe on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him for whosoever shall call upon the name of the lord shall be saved whosoever are we together whosoever so and the reason i have to explain this is because there is i i, I don't know if any of you is familiar with the idea of calvinism now the calvinist claim is the claim that there are already a number of people that have been reserved unto salvation meaning basically 
there are people who have already been chosen for salvation all right and so it really doesn't matter what you do what you don't do only by the graciousness of god can a man be saved and so god has already decided the elects that will be saved i see the problem with this verse is that the problem with this particular ideology now the funny thing is if you speak with calvinists you realize that calvinists in other bible topics are quite sound quite sound a calvinist is very sound in in in, in christ realities they are, they believe in that anybody we saved you know has received the holy spirit they believe that you know anyone we saved um um what's, what else is righteous is made holy you know and all of the in christ realities is redeemed from sin you know, etc., etc. But they also believe that a man is only saved by the graciousness of God. Hence, only God can decide who is saved. Do you understand? And He has decided it already from the foundation of the world. So, whether so, the people that are saved today are saved because God has decided that they are going to be saved. Now, the problem with that ideology or with that mindset is that it doesn't it doesn't align with every other foundational concept in Scripture. For example. That basically upholds the idea of free will. If God already decides who or who, who will not be saved, do you understand? Beforehand, it means that anybody that is saved today is saved because God had already decided that they were going to be saved. So at the end of the day, the person really did not exercise free will. That's the meaning. And anybody who is condemned is condemned not because they chose to be condemned, even though it seems like they chose it. But God had already decided that that person will be condemned. So the person really did not have a choice. So there's no free will. So do you understand? So that's the that's the reason why the Calvinist claim, even though because at the end of the day, when you make it, when you meet a Calvinist, do you understand? The problem with the Calvinist is that, and this is how you can always get Calvinists easily. A Calvinist will always stay on one verse. So the best way to explain to a Calvinist is to do corroboration. That's the best way to get the Calvinist. Just talk about, okay, when, when, when he's trying to explain one verse, one verse, one verse, then show how that there are other places, you know, because most Calvinists will always try to explain from the Pauline epistles, all right? And so what you do best is to also show places where Paul himself spoke about the possibility of all men being saved, all right? Just as we saw Paul speaking to Timothy, just on my point, you know, just show them how that from the same writer, there are enough other references as to how all men as to how god wants all men to be saved that's a simple thing because calvinists always you know they're always very i think it's also from the calvinist circle that we had this argument about um how that women cannot be pastors and the and the major reason that they gave that women cannot be pastors is that when people are funny is that when paul was speaking to timothy in first in, in first timothy about the office of a bishop that he said that um he who desires the office of a bishop desires you know a good thing and then he said um, a bishop must be the husband of one wife so because of that what that means is that it's only men that can be bishops it's only men that can be leaders in the church only men that can be pastors that's as i want to be very kind with my words that's as fickle as saying that because the bible says if any man be in christ is a new creature so women cannot be saved it doesn't make any sense. And that's why I said at the end of the day, the problem with these people is that they, they lock their eyes on one verse and they don't realize the implication of what they are saying on every other verse. If you are going to explain it like that, because it's not hard to realize that Bible language, as I've always said, 
English was reviewed over years, just as ideologies also were reviewed over years. I mean, this was a time when initially people, men were believed to be more powerful than women. Men were believed to be more stronger than women. I mean, in those days, it was so bad that you realize that when Bible says that um, Jesus did the miracle of five bread and two fishes for 5,000, it was 5,000 men. Go and read your Bible very well. You realize that it was only men that were counted. Children and women were not counted. Actually, so that miracle is actually even much bigger than people know. It's not even 5,000. The miracle would have been very likely at this time, two or 5,000, actually. But we don't talk about it. But the reality of it is that in those days, it was only men that were counted. That's what made the news of the resurrection of Jesus very bizarre. Because, and it's also one of the reasons why the claim has to be true. Because if you are if trying to forge a story, you are trying to forge a story about the resurrection of Jesus, the people that should first announce it shouldn't be women, it should be men. Do you understand? The fact that it was women that first announced the resurrection of Jesus shows you that it can't be a formed story. Because if you are trying to make a claim, what you are supposed to do is to use people that they are, in that sense, their story is credible. In those days, women, do not, they, don't, they don't take the, the words of women seriously. That's the reason why when women came to meet them and told them that they had seen Jesus, they didn't believe it's women now. Anything is possible with them. You know, they, they are a very emotional bunch. Do you understand? Even today, People take the words of women like it's nothing serious, like they're very emotional. Not to talk of in those days when they believed that women were under men. It was that bad. Are we together? So this just to give you some context around some context around some things. So let me continue um, as to where I was before. Uh, okay, so I was talking about the Calvinist claim. How the, the Calvinists, they, um, they don't think about the implication of other things on what they are saying, right? So I, I, And that's what made me dive into... Um, a woman being in ministry, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, well, maybe, I, I think maybe one day shall we talk about women being in ministry and so on and so forth. But what I was trying to show you basically was that, therefore, the Calvinist claim is wrong in the sense that they believe that only some elect few have been selected unto salvation. That doesn't make any sense. It overrides the idea of free will, and that's not possible. One of the prom- <coughs> sorry. <coughs> One of the primary concepts we see as regards salvation is that all men can be saved. All men are given a choice as to whether or not to pick salvation. The concept of dominion predicates the idea that a man has free will. Because if, if you give a man dominion, pay attention, if you give a man dominion but you don't give him free will, you really haven't given him dominion because you decide what he does. So at the end of the day, he really doesn't have dominion. Dominion, the idea of dominion is predicated upon the idea that a man can have free will. That's a simple thing, all right? So anyways, that's just by the way. I think I, I spoke about that better in Exploring Salvation um, Exploring Salvation 1. That's Understanding Genesis. So you can check that out. So to so continue what we are saying. So now, back to Ephesians 1 and verse 4. Ephesians 1 and verse 4. Our time is long gone. I'll just stop on this verse. Ephesians 1 and verse 4, he says, According as he has chosen us in him, therefore, now pay attention, it can't have been that what he's talking about here is that God had chosen those of us that are saved before the foundation of the world. That would be supporting the Calvinist claim. And that would be against the idea that every man can be saved. Hence, it's not that we that are saved today were chosen by God specially. No. Rather, it will be that, pay attention, God chose that whoever is in him would be holy and without blame before him in love, before the foundation of the world. So, before the foundation of the world, God had already decided that anybody who is in him 
would be holy and would be blameless before him in love. So it's not a function of whether I am the one or my brother is the one or my mo mother is the one or you guys are the one. It doesn't matter who it is. God's choice is that once a man is in him, that man is holy and without blame. You need to also understand that Paul is speaking from the, from the eye of a person who is now in salvation. All right. So when he says he has chosen us in him, you could, you know, rewrite it as he has chosen that we in him would be holy. I'm sorry. We in him, yes, would be holy and without blame before him in love, before the foundation of the world. Of course, before the foundation of the world, do not mean that he already made us that before the foundation of the world, but that before the foundation of the world, he has decided, he has chosen that whoever is going to be in him right would be holy and without blame because of course he already had this you know mindset before the creation of the world all right he didn't create the world and now feel like oh well what should i do right now well, i created the world okay so what can i do no that's not good all right the fact that he's god means that nothing catches him on our ears he doesn't change his mind all right he has already seen it before it happens do you understand my point? So these are things that would have gone on before the world was even created, before the foundation of the world. And that's also something you also need to pay attention to. The words before before the foundation of the world is even from, from the foundation of the world. There are two different things. All right. Before means before the world was created. From the foundation of the world means at the point when the world was created. So there are two different things. All right. So what you see, therefore, is that before the world was created, God had decided that whoever is in him, pay attention, whoever is in him would be holy and without blame. So it doesn't matter whether we are the ones that are in him or it's our sister or our parents or our brothers or whoever is in him. Once a man comes into that position of being in him, that man is now holy and without blame. And for, or therefore, the choosing is not that he chose us specifically, but rather that he chose that whoever is in him would be holy and without blame before him in love. And so, because we are in him, we are recipients of that choosing. Are you with me? The first and primary choice is not that God chose us. God chose all men. Let me not put it that way. He chose every man. That's the truth. Every man. He has, every man is chosen. That's a simple fact. He wants all men to be saved. All right? He has chosen every man. However, the choosing really is that if any man is in me, that man is holy and without blame in love and he already did that he already had that intention even before the foundation of the world are we together so paul is now speaking now as a function of a man who has become a recipient that okay according as he has chosen that we who in him will be holy and without blame before him in love and he did that before the foundation of the world he chose that it will be so before the foundation of the world hallelujah glory to jesus